0: Last week, my wife and I announced on Facebook and Instagram to all of our friends and family that we are expecting a new little one in December of this year. Yes, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You know who else is uh, very excited about the fact that we made this announcement? Facebook and Instagram advertising. Because suddenly, (laughs) (laughs) overnight, it seems like my advertising feeds all over those two platforms It's all about babies now.
1: It's all out there now. So now you're getting ads for light new balance, sneakers, jean shorts, maybe new mowers, stuff like that. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 289. 289. Just rounding the corner here on 300, which is kind of crazy to think about. I am Reed
0: Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. I'm just over here putting on my dark socks and sandals, because that's apparently yes. what dads do, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I need a refrigerator in the garage, and you've got to yeah, there's a whole thing. So it's great. <laughs> it's great. Well, welcome, everybody. Episode number 289, yet another week of TouchPoints. Certainly appreciate the support. When we started this, we say this every so often, when we started this, I didn't think we wouldn't get to this point, but it just never it just seemed like a long time, you know, two hundred and eighty nine episodes in, so I couldn't do it without all of you listeners. Before we jump in with today's show, quick plug, touchpoint.health is the website. If you would would love if you would click over, check it out. Uh, you can even dig around. We're actually going to talk about an old episode. So if you want to go back and find that, you know, show notes for all of these types of things are all right here. And you can find all those on the website while you're there. Other shows, show host topics, all that kind of stuff, fun stuff you can dig into. But if you'll notice up in the top navigation of the site, TPS report, it's an email comes out Monday mornings, five articles to start your week. It's a great way that hopefully we can provide a little uh, extra value. So we'll pause here let you go do that. Again, touchpoint.health is the website, and we'll be right back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors.
0: Sure is, and read. consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating.
1: Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider
0: of choice in your area,
1: understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty.
0: And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com touchpoint. That's reputation.com touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So, Reed, we we're recording this a week after the big announcement that kind of took over my entire LinkedIn and Twitter feeds, where Amazon announced the purchase of One Medical, and I'm sure it happened to your your accounts too, right? Yeah, saw a lot
1: of it. Certainly, uh, even you know LinkedIn, certainly Twitter uh, had several vendors email me the story or the link or you know the PR Newswire uh, kind of piece. But yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, I think a lot of people are talking about it. And it made us stop a moment and think about it. Because if you recall, many years ago, you and I did an episode called the Disruptive Healthcare Trifecta, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Remember that? Barely. That was a long time ago,
1: but we were spot on. I know that much. And uh, I did go back and and listen to it again just to refresh my memory of what uh, stupid things I might have said. I did hear myself say that I had a two-year-old. That current child is right in the corner. and uh, will be seven this December. So that'll That's give right. you some frame of reference on how long ago that was.
0: Yeah, February of 2018, we recorded this episode. It was, by the way, for those of you who are like to go in the back catalog, episode 54 of our show. Ooh,
1: 54.
0: Yeah. So that was like two episodes after our first anniversary. But nonetheless, in that episode, we did a deep dive on how, at the time, the industry experts were predicting Google, Facebook, and Amazon were going to have an impact, a disruptive impact across our industry, given the fact that we had this big announcement last week, you and I decided we're going to do a little bit different format today. We're going to actually go back and kind of revisit that episode and talk mm-hmm. about, you know, maybe catch up on how those predictions or those industry and a- analysts from four years ago and the conversation we had, how they flash forward to today.
1: It's kind of like grading the NFL or NBA draft or something like that some years later. It's like how, you know, the top 10 picks, where are they now?
0: Throughout this episode, we're going to do some clips of that episode 54, some of the salient highlights of each one. Let's talk about where we're at with Google and the update with Google. So why don't we dig into each one of these, Read what should I call the disruptive trifecta of healthcare? And the first one, of course, is one that, I think I use many, many times during the day, which is Google. (laughs) In a number of different ways, right? So, I mean, it's not just search
1: engine. It could be Maps, et cetera. So they've got, you know, Google Docs.
0: They think their advantages in this space is that they understand what users want, or at least they've been spending their whole, you know, life as an industry uh, trying to understand people's interest in searching. They put themselves out there as understanding the customer journey. And while I kind of agree with it, they have a slight advantage coming into the space because they have this knowledge, this preconceived knowledge of how we interact with digital platforms. Um, and by the way, they're collecting like thousands of pieces of information about us. You know, so they, they actually know us many cases better than our healthcare systems know us. Have we talked about the whole, like, scan your face and what portrait
1: are you? Have we talked about that on the podcast? I don't think we have. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where Like, you've seen people post these pictures and, like, you, it's some, I don't even know what Google app it is, but anyway, it scans your face and then it tells you what, like, famous portrait you look most like. And, like, you know, millions of people are doing this. And all the while I'm thinking, Google just figured out how to scan your face. Legally. So, to your point, like they know preference, they know all kinds of stuff about you, the details
0: uh, about you that just would probably blow your mind, but it only makes sense. I think we've talked about this in some previous episodes where Google is moving aggressively into the artificial intelligence space. And I think that's really one of the areas where uh, they have a distinct advantage. Artificial intelligence allows them to not only map your face to uh, you know, a famous art portrait, but it now it, with the advancements of AI, they can scan through millions of data records and try to start to identify trends, I- predict patterns. And that's where they're aggressively moving. And you, you may have read about some of these articles.
1: Yeah, so like predictive models and stuff like that. I, this first article is kind of interesting from MarketWatch. So it's opinion piece, but Google is since Google's developing its own prescription for US healthcare costs Smart artificial intelligence. It doesn't take much for them to just simply piece together some of their existing, I guess, algorithms and you know different things like that to understand what's going on. But you know could obviously drive down the path of a more accurate
0: diagnosis. Is what it's talking about. You know, Doctor Google. Exactly, Doctor Google in a whole other way, where they're even doing studies with Stanford, the University of Chicago, the University of California. Where they were able to see collaborative research using their artificial intelligence, that shows their AI platforms can work in almost in a more aggressive way than IBM Watson's could in this space, mm. and it can have a dramatic impact on unplanned hospital readmissions, which they predict like cost seventeen billion dollars a year, and lead right. to you know almost a hundred thousand deaths a year. One of the things they're really getting into the space is they're realizing. Their AI can be applied in a massive way for clinical research, for clinical trials. The facial recognition that you were talking about earlier, Reid, they're able to do that now with massive data sets. They're able to look at DNA molecules and being able to track patterns. As Google moves into the space more, they're really developing a neural network-based technology. Their artificial intelligence is able to teach itself to be smarter. And to me, that's really, really scary if you think about it. But it also has a foundational impact on how clinical research is going to be done in the future, particularly if they start to integrate it. It
1: talks about some of the stuff that they're doing, obviously, in here with with Stanford and uh, Mm -hmm. I think University of Chicago, et cetera, University of California. For it to become commonplace, though, aren't they going to have to get buy-in from all these other organizations and, and ultimately the
0: government? Yeah, I think ultimately it's going to need that. Government regulation is gonna rear its ugly head in this space pretty soon, if it hasn't already. And these are reputable organizations. These are big mm-hmm. names. It's not like they're doing it with like, you know, a small hospital in middle of Michigan. They're doing these with these big organizations that have a strong reputation in the space. I think people are paying attention.
1: But isn't that predictable though, to some degree? And I don't I mean, I'm not trying to run against what they're doing necessarily. But don't you expect that from Stanford? I I would almost find it more credible if they were doing
0: this with a group of rural community hospitals or something like that. The resources aren't quite there for sure. You know, we found another article on ZDNet, though, that talks about Google's parent company, Alphabet. And they have a project called Project Baseline. Have you heard about this, Reed? Just a little bit. Project Baseline is Alphabet's five-year plan to map the entire journey of human health. Now that sounds pretty ambitious, doesn't it? <laughs> this is a B. Is that what? <laughs> is that a billion. Yeah. What it's looking at is a variety of, it looks at a variety of different data. So it first starts with some of the stuff that they've already done. How do people search and start to investigate for care? And you can argue that Google's whole digital patient journey that they've published before is really a step in that right direction. The work that they're doing around Project Baseline is, gonna get, is getting significantly more deeper they're using it now so that when upon initial diagnosis you could tap into their massive data sources online the physicians can and they can actually start to access information start to diagnose what the problem is really start to you know keep track of what that particular illness is all the while they're tracking it back into the database so they can actually develop mm-hmm. baseline information for predictors of disease even the ability to look backwards.
1: So when someone gets sick, develops cancer, having the ability to look backwards and try to make determinations if we would have changed this, done this differently, will we have different outcomes.
0: Now, you know, I've been in this space for a long time, as you read, and I know we've been talking about doing genetic testing and, and creating, you know, these these massive libraries, d- data intelligence libraries. What Google's Project Baseline doing is tying these databases together on a massive scale so that so that healthcare organizations across the world can tap into these this makes me a little nervous it's a fine line from the here's what we
1: should have done here's what everybody should be doing to be healthier to like you know i
0: want my child to have blue eyes i feel like that's a slippery slope all of a sudden to be very clear alphabet's not developing databases where they can actually then you know do dna sequence mapping Yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, some of the other stuff that they're doing is they're starting to use wearable technologies to start gathering additional information that's not normally tracked in clinical research. So like the Verily watch, that's an mm-hmm. alphabet owned technology company. That watch is now tracking information like how much sleep they're getting, what kind of activities they do, their diet, vaccination stuff. You know, I mean, they're starting to track a more comprehensive patient record. Do you have to always have the watch on? Because that's going to be a problem for me. <laughs> if you do have the watch on all the time, you're going to be able to get your heart rate, your electrodermal activity, your inertial movements. Come on, Reed. This sounds do like it's... A- do all want to know this? Like, I don't... <laughs> It's also going to track to see like where you go around, what places you visit, what planes you're flying, where you go, and how you're going to spread diseases. Our alphabet is going to be there. It's going to know everything about our history, and it's going to extend into this world where it's going to know everything. So at what point does my watch realize that I'm not feeling great, and when I go to board <laughs> my plane, they're like, sorry, sir, <laughs> you can't get on this flight? That would be really good. That would be that would be something I think, actually, I would support. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, we're not going to let you get on this plane and infect other people with your cold. <laughs> Can I get this security quicker? Is that
1: possible? Does this come with pre-check?
0: Just let's wrap up a little bit here on Google. Um, one of the things, uh, Duke University School of Medicine, they indicate that there are three main aims for Project Baseline. So one is about getting more personalized healthcare, understanding what's the right thing for the right person. The second thing is being more preventative. How can we actually go from a reactive healthcare system to a proactive healthcare enterprise? Mm-hmm. And then the third, and this is probably the most ambitious of them all, is how do you pull it all together into this big healthcare jigsaw puzzle. And that's what our project baseline is trying to accomplish. I think of all you know the big players in this space, I think Google is probably, if we pick any technology company, is probably the one that's gonna make it here. Listening back to the clip on Google,
1: still thematically kind of where we are, maybe topically, thematically, I guess not a lot of differences uh, as far as AI, machine learning, that kind of thing, NLP, all big topics that we're still looking at on, on how to
0: use and leverage. We're now in 2022 at Vive, the conference, the Vive conference, Paul Moret, who's the VP and general manager of Care Studio at Google Health, they double down. They're announcing some new features around their clinical software to take data from different sources and develop that sort of intuitive patient record. So all the things from four years ago that they were talking about, it's starting to come true now. It's this new feature that uses NLP to provide physicians with a dynamic list of conditions pulled from patient records, related information like medications, labs, et cetera. He even had a really interesting quote. He says, providing information in the right moment is critical. That's the cornerstone or the North Star of what they're trying to do. Google needs to be also using the capabilities to extract meaning out of data.
1: I wonder, as an aside, how easy it's going to be. This is where it gets a little bit wonky for me. You know, you look at Epic or Cerner or the places that a lot of this information currently exists, how this stuff works together. This care studio was born out of Google's partnership with Ascension to pilot uh, that they talked about, the pilot an electronic health record search tool that pulls the uh, patient's electronic health records into an interface to help clinicians or easily find useful information is this a knock on
0: just where we are as far as the usability of some of these tools i'm not sure it's a knock it certainly represents a good partnership between an outside company like google and a care studio and ascension and other there's other partnerships they have too to show how we could use the best of outside and inside industry knowledge to kind of advance something in a significant way. The second update, we talked about something called Project Baseline. It's now called Verily. This is an alphabet company combining clinical research and healthcare business and really identifying some new ways they could partner with our systems across the country to extend additional information to make care much more meaningful.
1: They have projects that range anywhere from this, like, you know, ideas of biomedical research to virtual care to wearables and they even call out technology for mosquito eradication which i'm 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 in for that me too <laughs> let's double down on that one at a high level view they say the puzzle pieces of verley's work across the healthcare and clinical research are starting to fit together just like the last update like we're starting to see some
0: I guess, fruits of our labor here, maybe. And they indicate, right, clinical research is the core focus of what they're trying to accomplish here. Their ambition is to transform clinical research to make it easier and faster to run clinical trials. And by the way, they are partnering with a number of healthcare organizations across the country, including in my health system, to try to advance this. Good partnership between a technology giant like Google and Alphabet and us as a health system to try to advance some noble causes. When we come back from this next break, read. We're going to run a clip about Facebook, and then catch up to Facebook's where we're at today. And I have a feeling it's not going to be as rosy as this last update. Do this right after the break. Coming soon from Greystone Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media.
1: All right, so Google is predominant player number one. Another big one is uh, Facebook. Uh, We're on it a lot. Well, all the time, I guess, to some
0: degree. We tell it an awful lot about us. Why, why would they not be in this space? Facebook is the platform that I have to admit I never turn off on my phone. It probably knows everything about me. I Maybe I should log in and log out of it. It has all that personalized information about me, the preferences. It knows my friends. It knows, you know, all the things that I'm sharing, all the status updates. It probably knows my personal interests and my political affiliations as well. And understands our mental health and understands how to influence our mental health by sharing different types of posts in our feeds. I think Facebook sees this entire ecosystem of its audience as being a great place to conduct health experiments on. I mean, you've got everybody, right? <laughs> they're there a lot,
1: and they're willing to tell it stuff. doesn't matter what you're trying to study, I guess. It's, it's a great, great active community. I guess let's jump into some of these articles, because th- these are some of the things that I've kind of struggled with in my head a little bit. So the first one that we're looking at is from a site called The Mighty, I like that, the mighty. The article is called, Facebook says its update will make it better for your mental health. Here's what you should know. They're basing this off a post, actually, from Zuckerberg, um, I guess not too terribly long ago, where he's guaranteeing or wants to make it, you know, or they feel a responsibility, I guess, to make sure that the services are not just fun to use, but they're also good for people's well-being. And it kind of talks through and walks through this idea that people that spend time passively on the site feel okay or maybe not even even great Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) than people that actually interact with folks, right? So, uh, you know, I take that to mean that Zuckerberg is trying to move people towards, you know, continued interactivity, making sure that they're serving up content that
0: you want to see, friends you want to interact with. So about that logic... That's very interesting. First of all, Zuckerberg is saying the more you use the tool, the more mentally stable you will be, and the more healthy you will be. Okay, Not sure, that's true. But interesting correlation there, right? Um, although I do know a lot of people that passive aggressively use Facebook. So, oh, but man. we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that could be an episode in and of itself. Maybe that, you know, I do get the, the, the sense of, okay, you interact with other people. That's good for your health, for your well-being. I get that. But I mean, not necessarily the correlation between that and Facebook necessarily you know exists, but whatever. Let's take that into mind, though. What that means is Facebook is now changing its newsfeed to encourage people to interact with each other more. Now, what I feel might be a little bit, interesting, um, or might, might be a, 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 an interesting outcome of all of this, is that what you might be doing is you might be getting yourself in these little ruts of people that talk about the things that you like to hear about more, and kind of put you down this spiral pattern of, if you have friends that are supportive of you, that works great. But what if you have friends that are maybe not necessarily supportive, maybe they're not necessarily positive? Is that a good thing for you? No.
1: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess maybe in the short term. I, here's the thing. I, in this this article mentions it is that you know what's complicated about social media is that that people relate or have relationships with social media, so to speak, in very different ways. I know some people that use social media only for news related content. A lot of people do connect and use social media not to actually actively. Participate, but it's just to consume content. Some people use it to uh, engage in community, so they're members of a lot of groups, healthcare related or otherwise. But that's where they, you know, get in, interact, you know, receive value. Some people use it just to keep up with friends and family because maybe they've moved or you know they don't live mm-hmm. in close proximity to a lot of folks. And so people use these things in very different ways. What we've seen across a lot of these social channels. It's a very filtered view that people put out there. You're going to end up in this space where you're constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses, mainly
0: because that's the only thing people put out there. What's hard for brands, and particularly like hospitals and health systems, is in the past we thought of Facebook as a great way to get good, healthy content out to these audiences, well, some of the changes they're making to the news feed on, you know, purportedly to help with people's quote-unquote well-being is really making it harder and harder for brands that have a good cause, like hospitals and health systems, to actually get content out in front of people that might be of interest. So they've started to de-emphasize advertising and the ability to target in your advertising. That's a big change. Your organic posts are starting to get de-emphasized in the feed. And look, I get it. I get why Facebook's doing this they got into a lot of heat around what happened you know in the in the last elections and some of the things that are coming out but is Facebook really the place where your well-being rests I'm not sure I'm not convinced of that
1: but don't they still have to monetize it whatever happened in the last election you know whatever as far as Facebook goes because I still think at the end of the day it's a business decision for them they throttled brands content because the free ride was over right they needed to Force you into a paid model, right? Uh, they needed you to spend. Money. They need somebody to spend money, you know. Mm-hmm. So they can't. They can't turn around make people pay to have a profile. So mm-hmm. they've got to get brands paying money. And I still think you're going to find yourself down that path. Now, I do think they'll optimize "quote unquote" meaningful interactions. They need eyeballs. They need to be able to show these brands.
0: That they can get a return for their dollar. So it's an interesting balance. And the other thing that Facebook is really focusing in on is making sure they have a loyal user base, right? It boils back to the fact that if people are loyal to your platform, the platform itself will find ways to make money from that. And so the other thing that they're getting into is I'm sure you've heard about this, right? Is Messenger Kids. They launched this whole platform for kids under the age of 13 that they call messenger kids that's trying to push facebook technology into people under the age of 13. A lot of people ask me this church and otherwise, you know, why is it
1: 13 years old, you know, for Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. whatever. It's not that it's illegal per se to have a Facebook page if you're under 13 years old. What it was actually enacted around was the idea of of advertising, right? They didn't want advertising or There was a law enacted where, you know, couldn't advertise people under 13 years old. And so these platforms did not want to split the platform and have like a different experience for people under 13. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you have to be 13 to have this account. So this is the first, I guess, foray into that,
0: you know, splitting the platform, so to speak. And while they're saying, you know, that this platform is advertising free and, you know, parents have to set it up for their kids... The point is, is that a lot of advocacy groups are pushing back on this because they're saying that it's not necessarily that, you know, there's advertising or there's exposure to bad content. The technology in and of itself has the ability to really transform the way kids interact with technology. And in effect, more Facebooking can have a negative impact on people's mental health. The exact opposite of what Zuckerberg is saying. Uh, You know, when we go to the beach every summer...
1: I don't take any devices. It's kind of my digital sabbatical for a week. And it takes me like three days to like come down off of that. Well, that's not good.
0: So we're just going to start that younger now? It's kind of crazy. And there's a growing movement, and I just saw them on the news the other day, of people coming out against Google and Facebook saying that these technologies are addictive. They're causing people to depend on them for getting all the positive energy. All that well-being stuff that, that Zuckerberg claims that Facebook has, in this particular case... It's very negative, and it's impacting, and now they're rolling it out to kids. And so to me, that really freaks me out a little bit, I have to say. If you look at this article uh, on the New York Times, and again, we'll post links
1: to all these, obviously. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of quotes towards the end that I think frame the opposite viewpoints, maybe. But one is, you know, Facebook is saying that Messenger Kids is a messaging app that helps parents and children to chat in a safer way. With parents always in control of their children's contacts and interactions. Okay. As a parent, like that, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I can control who they contact and what the interactions look like. And, you know, okay, that sounds good, right? What's wrong Mm -hmm. with that? But if you go down and you look at, uh, there's a quote here from uh, Michael uh, Brody, former chairman of the Media Committee for the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Facebook is making children into a market, and the youngest will be more likely to get hooked uh, even earlier. I can't really argue with either one of those statements necessarily, just in and of themselves. But I think we're seeing... Kids as young as six years old now becoming a market.
0: That makes my skin crawl. Just hearing that, to think about that. Kids that young is now being targeted by Facebook. Okay, Reed, four years ago, you could even hear a little bit of our skepticism around Facebook and if Facebook really is going to do some positive things in our industry. And very recently, you and I did a whole episode about one of the, challenges around facebook uh, receiving sensitive medical information
1: it sounds like that uh, it's in full force based on your uh, targeted ads you've been receiving
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly but the problem is is that that ad component has suddenly become a big part of what they're doing and we have a couple of other updates that we're going to talk about here that kind of reinforces that the first one MIT did a study, and they found that Facebook is bombarding cancer patients with ads for unproven treatments. Really? Are you surprised?
1: Um, No. So here's the deal. Healthcare or not, all these platforms are ad-driven. Like That's the only way they can make money. And to be fair, they have to make money to employ people and to survive and and that kind of thing. So, I mean, you've got that working against you. So it's not terribly surprising that at some point what people are seeing happen is ad-driven. I will tell you, we have had platforms, I won't call it which ones, give us advice. Like the people that work at the platform, give us advice on how to place and optimize ads, you know, and things like that. that run counter to what, Chris, you and I have talked about for years about what's allowed even on these platforms. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. I didn't think we could do that. And uh, everybody's like, well, it's kind
0: of a gray area. you know." This article that we'll, we're linking to in the show notes, we have a lot of links in the show notes today, including the articles from many years ago. One of the things is they say here that uh, Meta reviews new ads through a largely automated process before they go live. But the problem is, is that. It's not as automated as you think. They have this inability to scale, right? They even say here that the only real way to combat misinformation on Facebook would require an army of fact checkers that Facebook is never going to pay for, given its past record, even on COVID-19 misinformation. But that didn't stop them from trying to make their ad targeting a little bit more in control, so to speak. They announced this year that they're removing certain ad targeting options and expanding ad controls of the users. That's great, huh? Yeah, it is <laughs> by definition. I mean, can you? But here's the deal Are
1: you going to go in and, and really update your ad, you know, your ad preferences and the controls and things like that? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm skeptical. Does the feature actually exist? Uh, sure. Is anybody then going to go use it? uh i don't know i mean this is kind of the same deal it's the same argument with like apps right it's mm-hmm. like yeah the app's cool and all but you got to get people to use the app features cool and all but like how are you going to get people to it how they know it exists and really understand it yeah
0: spend time with it and I totally get it and what they've by the way what they removed are like things like certain targeting the one that they call out right here right is health causes like lung cancer awareness word, world diabetes day chemotherapy those things are going away I guess they're trying in their rough way to improve their ad experience. And I think part of it is is like preventing people f- from exploiting some of the, the gaps they know they recognize in their in their overall experience.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, I you know, not to not to apologize for anything they've ever done, but at this point, it's like if they do some of these things they're going to get raked over the coals, you know, for not doing it right, or it's too late, too little, too late, or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. But if they don't do anything, then they'll get caught up. They're kind of in a no-win situation a little bit. Uh, Now, to be fair, it's probably of their own doing,
0: but here we are. I know that a lot of people listening, and they want to hear our hot takes on what's going on with Amazon. Why don't we do this, Reed? We'll take another break here. We're going to play the clip that we, we uh, talked about four years ago about Amazon, and then bring us up to speed about where they're at today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: The last one, the last of the three, Amazon. Oh, boy. I will say, you know, Amazon does understand predictive analytics. Uh, They understand delivery of goods and services. So it's not hard to imagine that Amazon would want to be in this space or could be in this space
0: or should be in this space, right? That's right. I mean, and and they're also understanding experience that transcends from online to offline. Think about the Whole Foods and using Amazon as a online fulfillment center. There is an article we found on Forbes. It's actually a three-part article that outlines how they think Amazon can transform healthcare in a, a significant way. First of all, look at the five capabilities that it's brought to retail. You mentioned it, Read the comprehensive consumer records. It's been doing that since Early on, I mean, I saw a video on YouTube of Amazon talking about this back in 1997, 98, something like that. They've been tracking consumer preferences.
1: Uh, You know, obviously, you know, that and then you couple that with personalized
0: content and user experience. Now it's starting to map like what I bought and ranking recommendations based on other what other people have bought, looking at past purchases, shopping cart items, other things like that. Analysts estimate that thirty five percent of Amazon sales are generated by its recommendation engine.
1: I was trying to kind of think very quickly in my head if I've purchased things based on that. I know I've watched like, you know, video, like Amazon video based off of recommendations and things like that. I'm trying to think if I've bought anything. I think I have actually. Usually when I go to Amazon and I'm purchasing a type of an item, you know, not by brand, you know, then you may see some of the recommendations and go, Oh, well, there's a good HDMI cable that has a good review, right? Like you're not going there to buy an HDMI cable by brand name. So you you could see that like in the healthcare space, you know, being able to go and actually purchase and consume based on what it is that you need, not not a you know so specific that you're you know dialing into
0: a certain location, even a certain doctor or anything like that. The other thing they have too going for them, Reed, is price transparency and choice. It shows you a product and it shows r- related products. It gives you the ability to compare products online. Yeah, we don't do that in healthcare. We can't do that. I'm sorry. We don't do price transparency.
1: <laughs> yeah, or choice. No, right. uh, qu- the quality of the reviews is number four. Um, so, you know, Amazon helps you know users gauge the quality of the products a- and even the sellers of the products uh, by facilitating that review. In their case, it's a pretty public loop, You know, incentivizes
0: uh, sellers to address quality issues. The fifth uh, element is seller execution and customer satisfaction. So they're known for not only being the best in customer satisfaction, 16 out of the last 17 years, the internet retail category, they won, but they also are really great at fulfillment. Uh, they're getting down to same day deliveries. I mean, think about that. Think about the uh, efficiency around the delivery model. So, mm-hmm. all of that kind of ties it together. And, you know, imagine having patient health data with complete longitudinal information and intelligent analytics at every point of care. Take it one step further imagine having personalized health pages with intelligible information, recommendations, and a dashboard based on a comprehensive view of a patient's history, condition, and interactions.
1: I just like in the article that they have a chart in here that compares the American Customer Satisfaction Index between hospitals, health insurance, and Amazon. (laughs) 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 It's not real surprising, but I'll let you all
0: go and check out the article. It's no wonder that Amazon is moving in this place. And we've heard about some of their other things that they're doing. The 1492 project where they're looking at EMRs mm-hmm. and creating a better platform for health records. I think now it's time for us to talk about that partnership that they just recently announced. The Berkshire Hathaway-Amazon-JP yeah. Morgan Chase partnership.
1: And if you go to this article, again, we'll have a link to it. Uh, I think it's in Canny. The picture of Warren Buffett looks like Will Ferrell playing Harry Carey. Playing Warren Buffett. (laughs) What they get to towards the end of this article is are some of those very things. Like, why is this partnership? Why is it interesting? And one of the ones in here, and this never really dawned on me, or I never thought about it this way, but is Amazon doesn't have to make money. Everybody else that innovates in the healthcare space—I say everybody else, most everybody else that innovates in the healthcare space—is going to have to worry at some point about revenues and reimbursement. So right now, they don't care. All they do is like, well, let's just figure out how we take care of our employees and how we break this and make it better. And then maybe it becomes a model. And again, this is something Lance
0: and I kind of get into that you'll hear about in a little bit. But, you know, maybe this becomes a model. Well, and that goes back to the very nature of what Amazon was based on. If you recall, Amazon was in the red for many, many years. and mm-hmm. And Bezos didn't really care. He's like, we're eventually going to see it through. And guess what? They did. They made it through, and they're mm-hmm. making money hand over fist. So now this partnership, this alliance, even declared itself to be quote free from profit-making incentives and constraints unquote.
1: And I think another interesting one in here is that you know the the ability for well all of them I guess to bring a different set of capabilities and experiences to some degree. What what they have going for them is they're they're not in healthcare. I mean nothing.
0: There's not going to be a learning curve. But I think that might be good for us to then pivot over to the last article that we found from CIO.com, one of our favorite places to go, mm-hmm. that's called Amazon and Healthcare. Is it disruption in motion or a big nothing burger? Depends on who you ask, I guess. A lot of skeptics do say, well, you know, this is something that's only unique to this partnership. Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, Amazon—only they can do it. It's not going to be something that's going to disrupt healthcare. While others are saying this is transforming healthcare as we speak.
1: Uh, yes and yes, maybe no and no. I, you know, it's—I think it's pretty easy to argue either side, right? I mean, this article goes through three big, I guess, themes: healthcare is increasingly virtual; the clinician shortage isn't letting up anytime soon; and the rise of healthcare consumerism is real. I think out of those, the one that really hits home for me is is the idea that the clinician shortage isn't letting up anytime soon. And so I don't care who's doing what, as long as we have a shortage of nurses, allied health,
0: physicians, et cetera, they're still going to become a bottleneck at some point, right? The fundamental part of that partnership is around providing access to good, affordable care to the employees without the constraints of being financially solvent. What they're trying to do is is increase access and looking at multiple different ways that they can actually provide that access, be it in person, be it virtual, what have you, and that would solve that problem that you're talking about, the clinician shortage, right? Because now, what if you had suddenly access to clinicians across the world? But then again, if everybody's
1: also not restricted, are we not still just back in the same boat? Not every physician is
0: going to participate telemedicine world, right? I I don't think healthcare providers or, or physicians will participate until the market is there, that's for sure. But once the market's there, we're going to start to see a shift of them being more more participatory. You know, one thing I've seen in my experience working with telemedicine and telehealth is that doctors don't really participate until patients are there. Then they start to say, oh, wait, maybe we should pay attention to this. Ultimately, it just goes back to simple things like supply and demand. Where's the market? And other things that are kind of supplementary to that healthcare experience, taking the face-to-face with the doctor aside, prescription fulfillment... That makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense, and I could see Mm -hmm. Amazon owning that space if they wanted to. The telehealth, telemedicine, imagine that coupled with like an Alexa. The the way that fundamentally that can change in this space. The article that we looked at from CIO.com sums it up. It says, none of this will eliminate the need for in-person visits for acute quick care such as for surgery or chronic care. But the author doesn't believe Amazon is looking to replace doctors. In fact, it may be that Amazon turns out to be just the thing the doctor ordered.
1: All right, Amazon, the million-pound you know gorilla in the room or, or whatever. So the other things are interesting. Uh, and they are big platforms and they'll probably continue to make big moves. But uh, as of late, and we'll get into the news here in a second, the Amazon piece is uh, probably top of mind for a lot of folks. Where are we currently with uh, Haven? Nowhere. <laughs> right. No, but we talked, uh, you know, back that you, you heard a little bit about, you know, the way that fulfillment. Fulfillment is the one for me that I think continues to make the most sense, Right. I mean, that's just the mechanism that they they do so well, like, hey, whatever it is you want, we'll deliver it to you, you know, kind of a thing. So that makes sense. And so like the pill pack uh, scenario and some of those types of things, totally, totally get it. And not that they can't do some of these other things and we'll get into
0: it. I'll just be curious on kind of how this goes, because it's not their core business. It isn't their core business. But as a couple of articles that we kind of highlight that dive into this one medical announcement indicate, this is something that they definitely want to double down on. They see this as an opportunity. If you think about it, right, you're right. The pill pack, Amazon pharmacy, all of that kind of started in 2018, right? Their healthcare ambitions go back more than two decades, this article that we linked to says. But running its own primary and urgent care service that they call Amazon Care, they have a website, that started in 2019. It first started to treat its own employees. But now what they're doing is they're looking to expand it even further. What do you think is part of this deal? Why is the One Medical purchase so important to Amazon?
1: Well, I think, I mean, if you, if you read into it a little bit, it gives them access to a whole lot more data. They're talking here about the fact that the One Medical had built its own EMR, uh, and it had 15 years worth of medical and health system data that now Amazon has access to.
0: This not—I don't not think it's lost on
1: anybody—that there's a huge data
0: play here. I think a lot of people are nervous about that because there's also been a lot of rumbling around antitrust. You know, there's been a lot of politicians, mm-hmm. including one in my state, that is trying to see if this deal is actually valid. But if we dive even further into the second article that we found that is subtitled reading between the lines of the one medical acquisition, one of the things that they actually say here is – the integrating of medical data with apps, offering recommendations for health activities and products, something we talked about four years ago, Reed, is kind of a component behind this. It's like delivering drugs through PillPack, providing nutritious food for inpatients patients through Whole Foods and Amazon. This is a big play of a bigger, bigger thing here. Someone actually has a very snarky take on this, and that's uh, Michael Abrams, managing partner of health consultancy of Numeroff and Associates. And he says, it's huge. It, does it fix everything that's wrong with our industry? No. But they they didn't set out to fix our healthcare system. Amazon is in it to make money. Right. That is his take on this. It is. Yeah. And I don't know that he's wrong necessarily. And I don't know that
1: them setting out to make money is necessarily a bad thing. No. But it, it, I can see where this makes a lot of people nervous. Right. So uh, they're talking here about the fact that one medical slots in Amazon Care is kind of hybrid primary care program for employers uh, launched a year ago. And then obviously they've expanded the virtual care element of the program nationwide. But the in-person benefit where, empl- where Amazon dispatches nurse practitioners to patients' homes has lagged over scaling difficulties in a tight labor market. I think that's an interesting one that I'd be curious to see kind of how they solve that. I, you know, I was talking to Bonnie Clipper, who's been on the show a number of times. There's a lot of the innovation uh, around nursing and kind of the future of nursing. You know, her, her comment to me just in, in passing, not about this particularly, was we're not going to catch up. As far as a labor piece goes. So how does the care delivery evolve? That's what's going to be interesting a little bit here is well, what can they do to evolve care uh, in the virtual and telehealth settings and things like that to to get people where uh, they need them? Because the the tight labor market is not going to self-correct.
0: I'm also thinking about the fact that Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods, it now allows you to go into a retail location to get produce but you can also pick up your Amazon packages. They're kind of blending that virtual and in-person care. And for my thought, there's there's this expansion too with One Medical. They have now 188 medical offices in 25 markets. Wow. So now maybe they have this, like, maybe they're exploring this, Uh, you know, uh, having nurses come to your home is one thing, going into a location, but kind of streamlining that whole virtual to in-person care. That's an interesting take for them. The other thing that's not lost on us, as they think about this one medical acquisition, we talked about all the patient data. One medical has a number of employer clients, which include Airbnb and Google. Wow. That's
1: interesting. I'm curious if you kind of take a step back, it's like you look at the Whole Foods play, for example, around nutrition and diet and you know some of that kind of stuff. I mean, do you do you think they're going down this path of trying to solve some of the social determinants of health, you know, elements? So you take food, you take uh, you know medical. Um, you think about you know how they do fulfillment and care delivery.
0: It's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know. I'd be curious to see kind of where this goes. One last comment in this article, which again, it's in the show notes. Go to it, go check it out. It says here the workforce problem in healthcare overall is inherently a problem for both One Medical and Amazon care, as well as all clinic- clinician focused service providers. This acquisition, says Nathan Ray, healthcare MA lead at West Monroe, he says he doesn't think this solves that. That's still going to be a problem here as we look back read at our three you know the trifecta of disruptors in healthcare google facebook and amazon they all have an interesting story and they all have gone in in predictable ways for us to be able to uh, you know look back now four years i don't know i'm kind of thinking that our calls were pretty good at the time what do you think
1: yeah i think so i uh, give us a passing grade for sure <laughs> But no, yeah, it was. I, I think this will be, cu- I'll be curious to continue to watch this. You know, I mentioned Haven earlier, you know, you see the play by a lot of these big companies into the healthcare space. You know, a lot of these companies are so big that these plays that they've made look big to the industry, but they're like a rounding error for them, Yeah. you know, in a lot of cases. So I'd like to see something, you know, kind of continue uh, to evolve and kind of see where
0: it goes. I guess we'll just have to kind of wait and see where they take this. If people listening in, what are your thoughts? We'd love to hear what you think. Ping us on LinkedIn, Twitter, what have you. We'd love for us, everyone, to be part of this conversation. I know a lot of people have thoughts around how these three disruptors are going to continue to change our industry. All right, Reed, we'll take a brief pause here. We'll come back and we'll close out the show with uh, recommendations.
1: All right. So fun episode. We may do do a few more of these revisit topics, things like that, uh, especially as uh, things hit the news and come out that uh, I think are making you know, impacts in the industry. So if you like this format, let us know. Love to hear from you, like Chris mentioned earlier. Touchpoint.health is the website, of course. Uh, so reach out, sign up for the TPS report, connect
0: with us, let us know what you think. And then
1: let's uh, we'll do a couple of recommendations and,
0: and call it a week. Uh, what do you have today? Well, Reed, everything is all about our pregnancy I mean, that's what it's all about. So, of course, I'm going to recommend an app. The What to Expect app. I know you're familiar with the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Their app, What to Expect, is an offshoot of the book. And it's really great. You can get it for your iPhone, your iPad. My wife has it on her phone. we kind of sit down and look at what's happening this week and those kinds of things. We still have the book, but I'm telling you, we go to the app much more often. But they have resources, including personal daily tracker that shows week by week and day of pregnancy development. And by the way, they have the crazy ways to tell you the size of your child. Like for example, just today, we're halfway through our pregnancy, is a large banana or a Kool-Aid burst or the Rose from Beauty and the Beast, depending on how you want to refer to sizes, right? Uh, that's kind of interesting. But moreover, they have videos. They have links to important resources. They have a lot of different things that are going to be very, you know, that are very helpful for us as this is our first. So so I cannot re- recommend more strongly the What to Expect at. That's a really great app, and I'm going to make that recommendation today.
1: Very nice. Very nice. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure we've recommended this before, but I'm going to recommend it again. And the reason being, it's a, it's a, uh, a docu-series on Netflix. But my son randomly uh, started watching this. There's only four episodes, but just randomly started watching this, not knowing that my wife and I would watched it, Chris, and that uh, you've watched it. And we've actually been there, you and I. This is a docuseries called This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist. Yes. It came out in 2021, but it's a a docuseries about the March 1990 robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. So this was the largest art heist in history. It's a four-part series. about what happened, this is still unsolved. This was actually produced, they say, over a seven-year period beginning in 2014 was released in 2021 on netflix i won't won't uh belabor that too much but this is a robbery the world's biggest art heist it's on netflix Uh, if you haven't seen it four parts it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, and there's still a reward. So, I mean, you never know.
0: You never know. You might get the reward. It's so fascinating. Uh, we've talked about it a lot, but it's so great. Watch the documentary. And if you're ever in the Boston area, go to that, the, the Gardner yeah. Museum.
1: Go check it out. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for uh, showing your support. If you'd like to help us out, certainly touchpoint.health is the website. Signing up for the TPS report over there is a big, uh, big plus. But more so than that, uh, telling a friend, a coworker, a neighbor an aunt an uncle whoever just have anybody listen to the show that certainly helps us out and make sure that uh, we continue to keep moving along and uh, that other people find it chris boyer i'm reed smith and we'll see you next week this has been a touchpoint media production to learn more about this show and others like it please visit us online at touchpoint.health